right. Well, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 22. And uh, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to look at the First Communion. Uh, Please pray with me. Father, we want to come before you to understand your word. We want to understand the details of the text. And Father, um, just how they uh, practically impact us as believers and our relationship with you and our worship of you and our walk with you. Father, may your Holy Spirit enlighten our minds, illumine our hearts, fix upon our lives the image of Christ as we look into your word the mirror of your word, which shows us our defects so that we might boldly approach the throne of grace and find help and mercy in a time of need. Father, may we do that this morning to your glory, honor and praise. Amen. G.B. Caird in his commentary on Luke calls the Lucan account of the Last Supper a scholar's paradise and a beginner's nightmare and i'm going to show you why i imagine there's going to be some of you this morning who are going to leave thinking what was that why the second go back and say it all again really slow that's how that's why we have the cds and the internet um For those of you who have been students of the word this morning, this is going to be a mental feast. I'm going to stretch out your brain and bless your soul. So uh, if you're looking at a a low-level message, this is not the one. Jesus is about 24 hours away from being crucified. It's Thursday morning of the Passion Week Passover is at hand. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 and following. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare for us, so that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is finished in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying this cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the one 
the hand of the one betraying me is, is, is with mine in the, on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. From this text, there are really five things I want you to take away so that you can better understand the first communion and really better worship Christ and appreciate what he has done for you. Before we get into the text, I need to explain some things to you so you aren't hopelessly lost. You're going to be lost, but this is so you're not hopelessly lost. And that is this. First, you need to make sure that when you come to this text, you don't take our practice and celebration of communion that you've probably partaken in many times and freight it back in to our text. Granted, we model our communion service after what Jesus did. But keep in mind, he is a Jew under the law of Moses. So he is also celebrating the Passover according to the law of Moses because he had to obey the law perfectly. On top of that, in addition to that, he is instituting the Lord's Supper. So there is some difference. And so try not to freight back information into that text and say, well, what about this? We do it this way or whatever. Secondly, you need to know about the ancient Jewish book called the Talmud, a book containing the Mishnah and Gemara, which is really uh, the two major sections in it. The Mishnah contains really the tedious bantering of rabbis over the interpretations of Old Testament texts and Jewish traditions. I, when I say tedious, I mean, wow. I read my wife some about uh, chickens. There were paragraphs and paragraphs about what to do when a chicken laid an egg and when to take the egg from it and when to let it to sit on the egg and how many days had to go by when it didn't sit on the egg so that, you know, you could, it's like, okay, okay. Um, so we're talking very tedious rabbinical discussions about some very fine minutiae that not, are not found in the Bible. This book was completed around 200 A.D. That is the Mishnah. The Gemara, the other major portion of the Talmud, was written about 500 A.D. Though the Talmud is a compilation of both of these works and a few other writings. And from these works, the Mishnah and Gemara contained in the Talmud, was derived another book called the Haggadah. And that book was written so that people, the Jews, would know how to celebrate the Passover Seder, a Passover meal. Now, why do I mention this? Because these works were written two to five hundred years after Jesus. And yet, when you look into commentators, almost all, all of them take information from those books and freight them back into their thoughts about the text we're looking at. That is called an anachronism. When you take things out of place. Now, granted, many of the things in those works, the Jews knew about, Jesus knew about, the disciples knew about in our text. But we don't know how many. So we have to be very careful about not thinking that Jesus understood something that wasn't written for 200 or 500 years. 
And so keep that in mind. Third, you need to keep in mind that the Jews reckoned their days differently from ours. We follow a a, a Roman system where our days are from midnight to midnight. And so if I say, when is Sunday? It would be, you know, right after midnight uh, on uh, Saturday to midnight uh, uh, Sunday night, and that would be the 24-hour period that we know as Sunday. They, however, did things differently. If you were to um, ask a Jew living around Jerusalem how you were supposed to calculate days, it was always from sunset to sunset. This is confusing to us. Because if I were to say, what day is it today? You might say, well, it's Sunday, January 16th. And you would be correct. And then tonight, if I were to ask you right before the sunset, what day is it? You would say, it is Sunday, January 16th. And that is correct too. But after the sunset, if I were to say, what day is it? You would say, it is Sunday, the 17th. If you use Jewish reckoning. Or you would say it's Monday. Now, this is all very confusing, and I know it is, and that's why we're taking time on it. What happens is, is when I'm trying to describe things to you from the text, I have to use terms you understand. You understand Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. They understood first day, second day, third day of the week, and they also use some Roman terminology for each day of the week. And so that's why when you go through the Bible, it says, and it was the first day of the week or the second day of the week. So when they're thinking first day of the week, they're thinking evening at sunset to evening at sunset, not like we think. The problem is, is if I use our terms so that you can understand me, I'm going to use Friday or Thursday, and you're going to think midnight to midnight. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Because you will just be like, Gah. you will get a brain cramp when we get into our text. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. I want you to know and just get this fixed in your mind. The Passover day was the 14th of Aviv or Abib, if you, whatever you want to call it, or Nisan. You say, well, which one is it? Well, both. You say, well, how is that? We'll get there. All right. But let's get into the text. Let's first take a hike to prepare the Passover. Look at Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the first day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, this whole statement there, and if you've never studied it, is uh, it's an anomaly. You're thinking, why? We'll get there. But the Passover lamb had to be killed on the 14th of Aviv. Now track with me. Aviv is the biblical term that we find in the Bible, used in the book of Exodus. It was the first month of the Jewish calendar, like our January. But it spanned parts of our March and April. Started out really at the spring equinox. And so what happens is, is the Jews have this reckoning. They call it Aviv, which is the first month of their calendar year for a long time until they're taken captive to Babylon. And when they go to Babylon and they're there for 70 years, when they come back, they are now calling it Nisan. 
So Nisan and Aviv are really the same month, the first month of the Jewish calendar, whether you want to do it according to the biblical way or the Babylonian way. Both are used, and now you know the difference, but you know they're the same. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to begin on the 15th of Aviv. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was to last seven days. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 4 through 6, and Numbers 28, 16 and 17, for instance. Seven days, they were to eat no leaven. They were to have no food with leaven in it for seven days and have a big feast at the end. By the way, if you had any leaven in your house in either the Passover meal or in those days following, and it was discovered, you would be cut off from the people of Israel. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. The leaven, you say, well, what was the big deal? What was the whole point of the leaven? Well, um, really, in, in one, one sense, it was to symbolize their leaving Egypt in haste. They didn't have time to leaven their bread. And so that when they would eat that unleavened bread, which is like a giant saltine cracker, or if you've eaten matzah, then you know what it's talking about. They were to think, man, I didn't have time to put yeast in this. Because, oh yeah, I remember our fathers had to leave Egypt in haste. And in a more spiritual way, it also described their departing from this pagan Egyptian culture to leave to worship the Lord in newness of life. So it was like a departure from this evil place to a new place, the land of promise. So both of those things are kind of contained in this unleavened bread. And that was to follow seven days after the Passover. Now, here's the first twist in our Gordian knot that we need to try to untie. The Jews, by Jesus' time, seem to have merged the, the Passover with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you're thinking, well, what do you mean? That the Passover meal was also considered the feast, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Instead of having Passover and then the feast, it was Passover and the feast stacked. You say, well, how do you get that? Here's how I get it. Several texts. The first one is Matthew 26, verse 17, which says this. Listen. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare to eat the Passover? That's basically the same thing we read in our text, isn't it? In Luke 22, verse 7. It's the first day. Well, first... There was the day of Passover, the 14th. Then on the 15th was the feast, the beginning of the feast of unleavened bread. But notice it says it's the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. And the disciples come and say, where do you want us to celebrate the Passover? So it's both Passover day and the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. Not only that, in Mark chapter 14, verse 1, it comments, now the Passover and leavened bread were two days away. Well, if you read in the Old Testament, we're going to do that in a second, you'll see that the Passover was on the 14th. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was on the 15th, so they couldn't be both two days away unless you what? Merge them. Mark chapter 14, verse 12 says, goes on to say, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, you're thinking, whoa, how does this work? Because they were merged or maybe not. We'll talk about it. But turn to Exodus chapter 12, turn to Exodus chapter 12. And I want you to look with me as we read the original account 
in verses 3 through 13. This is the, the right before the last plague, which is the death of the firstborn in Egypt. The angel's going to travel over Egypt and uh, destroy, kill all the firstborn of men and cattle and beasts. And uh, there's only one way you can escape and have the judgment of God pass over you and your house as a Jew. And here is how. Verse 3, Exodus 12, on the 10th month, of this month, that is the month of Aviv, or later to be known as Nisan. They are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Now, later on, the rabbis were to add that there needed to be at least 10 people to eat the lamb. That You don't kill a lamb because you had to burn up the rest of the lamb. So it had to be at least 10 people. So if you had a small house, let's say you're just a newlywed couple, you might get together with two or three other newlywed couples. So you'd have a group of people. It didn't say 10, but the rabbis added added that later. Verse five, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats could be either a lamb or a kid. Um, you shall not a child kind of kid. Um, we aren't talking about infant sacrifice here. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month of the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh the same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boil at all with water, but rather roast it with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded and your sandals on your feet and staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both men and beast and against the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the door, uh, on the houses uh, where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, like many things the Jews put their hands to, these simple instructions here really um, turned into a whole book, the Haggadah. And uh, they have all these regulations and things and questions you ask. It's almost like a catechism, a time to remember where you ask questions. There's answering, there's role playing, there's different items on the table and, you know, that aren't prescribed here uh, just to commemorate the original Passover. Now we know from texts like Matthew or Mark 15:42, Luke 23:54, John 19:31 and also verse 42 that Jesus was crucified and buried the day before the Sabbath. The Sabbath is on Saturday. This tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was crucified, died and buried on Friday before sunset. So that is clear. This means that When the disciples were told by Jesus to go prepare for the Passover, it was Thursday morning and Thursday night, 
they would have their Passover meal. And then after that, Judas would betray Jesus in the garden and Jesus would be tried, scourged, Friday, crucified, die and stuck in the tomb. So that's pretty clear so far. And I want you to know, you think, well, yeah, that that's good. That's good. But I'm telling you, if you were to ever study this passage and open up any commentaries, it's like a thorn patch. There are so many views people are sticking out there to try to say, well, when did Jesus actually die? Did he die on the 14th or did he die on the 15th? Did he die on the Passover? Or when, when was the lamb killed? Did they kill the lamb? Did, did they not even celebrate? Was this kind of like because Jesus knew he was going to celebrate the Passover and so they just kind of had a meal that they called the Passover but it wasn't the Passover because it wasn't the Passover day, but that they actually did it? Or maybe they did it at the very beginning of the 14th and Jesus died on the 14th and then they celebrated the thing in the 15th. The, the other, or well, what is it? And I'm telling you, there are there are are gymnastics of incredible proportions that will baffle you as they did me. All right. Originally, the Passover lamb was slain at twilight on the 14th. We just read about it in the original instruction manual, Exodus 12, as indicated by Leviticus 23, 5 and Numbers chapter 9, verse 3, verse 5 and verse 11 as well. But what exactly does it mean, kill the lamb at twilight? Now, Get your Jewish thinking caps on and just follow me here. Does that mean kill? Now, they, we know they need to kill it on the 14th. So does that mean wait until the very end of the day on the 14th, kill it, and then the sun sets, and you celebrate the Passover meal on the 15th? Or does it mean wait on the 13th until just when the sun goes down, Sacrifice the animal, take off its skin, roast that baby, eat it that night, and the next morning, it's still the 14th, and all that day is still the 14th. What does it mean, kill it at twilight? It makes a difference, especially when we look at our text. It makes a huge difference. And so this is kind of the the, the first little knot that we come to, and thankfully, there is a verse a wonderful verse that unravels this for us. And it's in Numbers chapter 33, verse 3. And you may be thinking to yourself, does any good thing come out of Numbers? And um, you just have to ask all the women at Calvary who are studying Numbers. Uh, a lot of good things come out of Numbers. Actually, besides the lists, which are a little tedious numbering people, uh, Numbers is really one of the most action-packed books in the Old Testament, believe it or not. Um, it's just balanced out by some lists. But look at Numbers chapter 33, verse 3, and you can see the answer to the question. Moses is writing about the first Passover, and he says this. They journeyed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month, which would be the month of Aviv. On the 15th, they left Egypt. On the next day after the Passover, the Passover is the 14th. The sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. So here it is. We know that they killed the lamb They had to kill it on the Passover, and we know they left Egypt on the 15th. We know from reading the text in Exodus that 
They killed the lamb one at the end of one day and they left on the next day, which tells us this. They killed the Passover lamb at the very end of the 14th, the day of the 14th. Right before sunset, they killed the lamb. Then sunset and they had the Passover meal, that first Passover meal at the beginning of the 15th, which started right after sunset. And then the next day they left Egypt, this text says, on the 15th. So that's how they did it originally, which is cool, which is good. And this is going to come into play later. And we like this. Okay. Keep that in your mind. That's another thing to stick in there. Just don't stick it in a back file. You're going to have to bring this up. All right. Now, therefore, when we read texts like Exodus 12 and Leviticus 23 and Numbers 9, when it says kill the Passover lamb at twilight on the 14th of the month, that means right before the end of the 14th, right before it gets dark, kill the lamb. And then eat the Passover meal on the 15th. Now, what is the 15th? It's the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. And it just so happened that during the Passover meal, you would eat what? Unleavened bread. It's like, it fits. It fits perfectly. But hang on. Now, I just want to give you another little tidbit here before we kind of get into some of the the hard parts. And it's found in Deuteronomy 16, verses 5 and 6. I'm just going to insert it here because I didn't know where to insert it, but it's important for the text. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 5 and 6, remember, they've left Egypt. They've wandered around the, the desert for 40 years. And right before they enter into the promised land, Moses writes the book of Deuteronomy. Deutero means second and namas means law. It means second law. It's really not a second law. It's the same law they received in Leviticus and the first 10 chapters of Numbers and parts of Exodus. It's that same law applied to everyday situations in the land where they're going to be heading. So it's kind of like a practical manual for the law that's already given. And so they're about ready to enter into the promised land. And this is what we read in Deuteronomy 16, verses 5 and 6. You are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name, you shall sacrifice Passover in the evening at sunset at the time that you came out of uh, at that at the time that you came out of Egypt. So here, what Deuteronomy is saying is, listen, these 40 years that we've been wandering around in the wilderness and we've been celebrating the Passover, you've been doing like you did that first Passover when everybody at their own house killed their lamb at their own house. So we've been wandering around and you've been killing your lambs at your own tent. But I want you to know, when we go into the promised land, I'm going to cause a place for my name to dwell. And at first it would be with the tabernacle and later it would be in the temple. And you are to go to that location to sacrifice your lamb. Keep that in mind. That is important. So the lamb needed to be slain on the 14th of Abib, the day of Passover. And 
they needed to do it in the temple. Now, the Jews added to this that it needed to be sacrificed between 3 and 5 p.m. And you say, well, why did they add that little regulation? Well, because when you think about it, if sunset is about at 6 p.m. and you have to get the lambs sacrificed, and there's a lot of people, people are going to ask, how early can I sacrifice my lamb so I can get the skin off it, so I can roast it, so I can eat it that night? And so just mere necessity made them say, okay, we're giving you a two-hour window to sacrifice your lamb. And that was on the 14th, the 14th Passover, they were to sacrifice that lamb. And they made that practical little regulation. This comes into play too. Hang on. But to make things more complicated, because the lambs had to be slain in the temple and their blood poured out at the base of the altar, this caused a logistical nightmare. Because everybody had to slay their lamb in the temple during a two-hour window. What complicated matters even more is the Jews at this time believed the Messiah would come back on Passover. Because during the first Passover, the Passover lamb, remember, delivered them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And so this thought was going around that the Messiah would come back to deliver them from bondage and slavery to Rome, and it would happen on the Passover. This made the Passover feast the most popular of all the pilgrim feasts. And if somebody could only afford to travel from, you know, somewhere far away in the Mediterranean and come to Jerusalem for one Passover feast, they would come at Passover because it was I mean, you want to be there when the Messiah shows up and beats up Rome. So this then brought lots of people in. Well, how many people? Well, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that uh, this is about 25 years after Jesus died, so still in the first century, that the Syrian governor, Cestus Gallus, wanted to impress Upon Nero, who was just starting his reign, the significance and importance of Jerusalem, Israel, and the Jews. And so he wanted to explain just how many, especially during this feast, are coming there. And so he tried to think, how can I count all these people who are just swarming Jerusalem? So what he thought is, oh, all I need to do is go to the temple and have the priest tell me how many lambs are going to be slain this year. Since the rabbi said you need at least 10 people to eat a lamb, if we can calculate the number of lambs, we'll know the minimum number of people that are in the town. That year, 256,500 lambs were slain. Now, if you consider that you only have a two-hour window, it's like, come on. Can anybody do that? I mean, wouldn't that be 128,250 lambs per hour? 2,137 lambs per minute? 36 lambs per second? I mean, come on, you know? Is that real? Yes, it's real. And I'm going to tell you why. Because there wasn't just one priest. Let's say you had 150 all-star priests. 
These guys were the young guys. The guys who had been exercising, waiting for Passover to come. You know, they're all the, you know, triathlon priests. And they're lined up in front of the temple and everybody's in a queue. And how what would happen is, is you have your lamb or your goat, your kid. And you're going to now, you've got that thing and you're holding it. You're lined up. Everybody's lined up in front of a priest all equally. And you're all waiting for the three o'clock hour so everybody can like get there, get their lamb sacrificed. And what you would do is you'd lay down your lamb real quick, put your hand on its head, confess your sins. You would kill your own lamb, slice its throat, its carotid artery. The blood would quickly pump pump out. The priest would be there with silver and gold bulls. They would catch it, catch some blood, and they would pour it in in front of the altar. There was actually a trough there that would file out. There would be actually a channel dug in the stone, and there would be a river of blood flowing out, I think, into the Hinnom Valley. We're talking major. What this means is there was 150 guys. Every priest would have to slay a lamb every five seconds. One, two, three, Four, five, next guy. That's doable. And if you had twice that long, if you had four hours, you could actually do one every 10 seconds. And that would be doable. You say, well, did they have four hours? Well, you have to wait. (laughs) The rabbis then, because... Because they said at least 10 people per lamb, this tells us that at a minimum, there were 2.6 million people in Jerusalem. Josephus tells us that he estimated the number to be 3 million who swarmed into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jerusalem was gridlocked. It was like uh, going to the supermarket Thanksgiving morning. Or you think, oh, I just need some butter, and you, the parking lot's full, and you walk in, and you're thinking, this was a bad idea. You know, you're just, that's how it was. People were, were, were getting ready, they were making food, they were preparing. I mean, there were certain things they had to eat, and they couldn't eat any unleavened stuff, but it didn't say that they couldn't eat anything besides what was prescribed. For instance, in our text, they're drinking wine. That's not prescribed in the original account, but it's what they drank. And so there were other things, but they had to eat certain things prescribed certain things and they had to get ready for that so look at verse 8 now we're now ready to look at our text and start working through it a little bit more verse 8 and jesus sent peter and john saying go and prepare a passover for us so that we may eat it now just see it in your mind jesus saying okay peter john these are like the two biggest guys the fishermen yeah um go into the fray Go over the Mount of Olives from where we're staying. Go down and descend into the Kidron Valley and then head for one of the gates of the city. And when you see all those people, millions, literally there, you crush yourself through them. Go prepare the Passover. And then they asked the logical question, verses 9 and 10. They said to him, well, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him in the house where he enters. So here it is. I told you I was going to emphasize the sovereignty of God. 
in these accounts because I want you to see it in this whole way. Notice that Jesus, when Peter and John, who are his most trusted disciples, the leaders, when he says, I want you to go prepare, and they ask him a specific question, where? Jesus didn't say, go to such and such a place and there we'll have it. What did he say? He said, go into the city and look for a guy carrying a pitcher. Why? Because Judas was there. Judas wanted to betray Christ. And Christ needed to live a little bit longer. And this way, Judas would have no idea where it was going to be because there was no specific location, there was, though there was specific instruction. So Jesus is still preserving his life so he can die at just the right time. So Judas then would just stay behind with Jesus because he didn't know where Jesus would be and wouldn't know how to betray him. Thus, Jesus is controlling the situation so that he dies on his timetable, not Judas's. Now, some have tried to say that Jesus, you know, prearranged this whole thing. And you know what? It's probably true that the guy had that the owner of the house where the servant with the pitcher of the water went, the owner of the house, Jesus probably knew him, maybe healed him or healed his wife or something. And maybe said, you know, when Passover comes, I would like me and my disciples to eat at your house. And he probably said, sure, I'll have it ready. And he says, yeah, they'll come to you that day and contact you. That may have happened. That discussion may have happened. But listen, there is something more than just planning here. There's 3 million people in Jerusalem. Be like going to a Dodger inning at the seventh inning stretch and saying, now, I want you to go out to the other side of the stadium and find a guy with a blue hat, with a Dodger dog, peanuts, and a beer. You know, I mean, it's like, are you, you're kidding me, right? Yeah, find that guy. It's like, well, look at, look at the people. So this is how it is. It's, it's almost a ridiculous statement unless you were God. Unless you knew the future. And so obviously Jesus has tapped in to his omniscience that it was the Father's will that he do this so that he could send them to the city and give them such a strange indicator in this mass of humanity. Peter and and John probably walk into the city and they're thinking, man, this is going to be a nightmare. It's like, well, there's a guy with a pitcher. Well, let's follow him. And they do. And they do. Look at verse 11. And you shall say to the owner of the house, they follow the guy to the pitcher into the house, teacher says to you, where is the guest room which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room, furnished upper room, prepare it there. And so he says, go do it. Go do it. Now, I just want you to know, there, when it says a large upper room, this is like a second story room. It says large. You think, well, there's 12 plus Jesus. There's probably a lot more than that. The text doesn't say, but we've seen as we've gone through Luke that in multiple times when we thought there was just the 12, there was actually a very large group of people. A lot of women were following him. A lot of disciples were following him. Not only that, the law of Moses said that you were to share the Passover with your children. And surely all these apostles who were married didn't like, you know, say, wives, children, stay home. You're just going to have to not have it with us. You know, they were probably be there. Uh, the text doesn't mention them. But anyways, it is a large furnished room. Now, unlike uh, Leonardo da Vinci's painting, which I, we saw up on the screen earlier, it wasn't some stark room with planks of wood set up on sawhorses and a tablecloth to make a large table with everybody sitting on one side in chairs, drinking from glasses 
clear glass glasses and then sprinkled around the table various loaves of bread, leavened bread. Um, that did not happen. Okay, so you need to get Leonardo da Vinci's wall mural out of your mind because uh, that's not how it was. Uh, the tables would have been low. There would have been pads, cushions on the ground. People would have kind of leaned towards the table, kind of like sardines, their feet usually away, and they would eat that way, uh, propping themselves up. And this was kind of the style. And there could have been a lot of other people in the room. The disciples would have been near Jesus. Look at verse 13. And they left, Peter and John left, found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So they hiked over the Mount of Olives, stayed that, where they stayed in Bethany for the night. We saw that earlier. And then they found the guy with the picture, followed in the house, talked to the owner. The owner said, here's the room. They say, okay, we're ready to prepare. So you need to get some bitter herbs for sure, some unleavened bread for sure, for however many people are going to be there. We need to get our lamb. We need to get over to the temple. We need to get in line so we can get that thing sacrificed and get back here in time. So this is what's happening. Now, keep in mind that the lamb could only be eaten with this unleavened bread and needed to be eaten with bitter herbs and according to the law of Moses. So it's Thursday, the 14th of Aviv, which is when the lambs are killed. Passover day, the day the lamb was to be slain before sunset between 3 and 5 p.m. The 15th would start at sunset, according to the reckoning of the Jews there in Jerusalem. Passover meal uh, uh, would then be eaten really on the beginning of the 15th on Nisan. But if you, you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a second there. Hold on a second. That, that's not right. Jesus had to be sacrificed on the Passover. I mean, he had, he was the Passover lamb. I mean, he's like the big Passover lamb. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Surely, surely Jesus had to die on the 14th. Well, if that's true, then they killed their lamb on the 13th. And this is a problem, isn't it? Okay, cinch up your seatbelts. Let's see. First, what we can summarize, what we've learned so far. One, we know the Passover is the 14th of Aviv or Nisan. Secondly, we know the Passover lamb had to be slain on the 14th. It says that in verse 7 of our text. Third, we know that Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples on Thursday night, was betrayed on Thursday night, Arrested on Thursday night, taken to trial, scourged, beaten, mocked, and on Friday, the same calendar day, crucified, buried, and put into the tomb. We know that. That is crystal clear. Now, the problem is, is this doesn't seem to like fit with us. There's just something in us that says, can't we have Jesus die on Passover? Yes, we can. You say, well, how do we do that? Let me show you. But does that mean they, the day before they didn't kill their, their lamb on the Passover? No, they did that too. How was that? I'm going to show you. Turn to John chapter 18. John's gospel chapter 18. Verse 28. 
It's Friday when John write, is writing about in John eighteen twenty eight. Jesus has been betrayed, arrested, beaten, scourged, is about uh, to go before Pilate. And this is what we read. And they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was early. That's early Friday morning. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. What? The Jewish leaders don't want to go into the Gentile court because they don't want to be defiled by Gentile cooties because that night they're going to eat the Passover. Well, I thought... Jesus and disciples ate it the night before. They did. Well, then why are they waiting to do it that night? Because it's Passover. You're thinking, no, this is not right. That's what I was thinking when I was studying it. Look down at John chapter 19, verse 14. Jesus has been shuffled back and forth from Herod to Pilate. And then we read... In verse 14 of John 19, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. Notice the Jews are preparing for the Passover meal. Notice it's the sixth hour, 12 noon. In three hours, the Passover lambs must be slain. And I know what you're thinking, but wait, but wait, but wait, but wait, but wait. This couldn't be the Passover. The Passover was the, the first, the day before. The day before. Why are these people like getting ready to celebrate the Passover now? This is a huge knot that must be unraveled. Now, Here's how you unravel it. There's three calendars operating at this time. There is the Roman calendar, kind of one we use. There is the northern Jewish way of reckoning days. The northern Jews believed that they were, that days were to be accounted from sunrise to sunrise. So everybody who didn't live in Judea, north of Jerusalem in Judea, would use the northern reckoning. The disciples were all from Galilee, northern, northern Jews. So they are calculating days from sunrise to sunrise, from morning to morning. So when Jesus tells them, that Thursday morning, the 14th of Aviv, I want you to go and prepare the Passover. They spend that day, the 14th Passover day, getting ready to sacrifice the lamb. They get the lamb sacrificed on the 14th, go back, cook it up and eat it on the 14th because the 14th for them starts from sunrise to sunrise. So the whole time, not only the killing of the lamb, but the eating of the meal happens on the 14th. We learned that from the Mishnah, from Pesachim in the Mishnah in uh, section 4, 5 and 10, 9 and Zebahim 5, 8 and Josephus uh, I think it's Antiquities 3, uh, section 10, verse 5. The disciples were Galileans, and being Galileans, their Passover 
would start at sunrise. So everything that Jesus did, he did according to the Galilean reckoning of sunrise to sunrise. And he ate the feast with them and they killed the lamb on the 14th according to the northern Jewish reckoning. Now, the southern Jews, however which included all the priests, most of the Pharisees, the rabbis, the scholars who clustered around Jerusalem and the temple, they all used the southern reckoning, sunset to sunset, because that fit strictly to the law of Moses. Now you say, well, why didn't they like force the issue? Because people are stubborn. It's like us going to another church and say, hey, you need to do it like us. Like, get out of here. Okay, so that's what's happening. You have the northern Jews who are committed to their sunrise to sunrise reckoning. The southern Jews connected to the sunset to sunset reckoning, which the teacher said, you know, this actually helps because now all the lambs can be sacrificed on two different days in two hour time slots, doubling the time, giving 10 seconds per lamb. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. So. What happened is Jesus sends his disciples out on the northern reckoning, 14th of Aviv, sunrise to sunrise. They go out, they make the preparations, they kill the lamb, they prepare the meal, they eat it, and that's what happens. However, Jesus is betrayed, technically speaking, on the 14th in the southern reckoning. He actually, or on the 15th in the Southern Reckoning, because he actually, if you think about it, is following the exact prescribed time as we just detailed earlier in Exodus. Remember, it was the 14th, they killed the lamb right before sunset, and then on the 15th, they ate the meal and they left on the 15th. That is the system that Jesus' crucifixion takes place in. So, he then is still able to celebrate with his disciples, but at the same time, according to the strict interpretation, the real interpretation, the unaltered interpretation of Exodus, he submits himself perfectly to the law of Moses too. He is betrayed on this 14th Southern Reckoning, is tried, is beaten, is spat upon, is scourged, is, you know, traded uh, for the criminal, and is crucified. Now, I just want to give you a little text here from Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. It's Friday. All that has already happened. Jesus is now um, on the cross. And we read this, Mark 15, verse 33. When the sixth hour came, that is noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. At the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which translated means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when someone, some of the bystanders heard it, they began to say, behold, he's, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw that the way he breathed his, breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And so get this. Jesus breathes his last at the very beginning when all the Jews are crammed into the temple to sacrifice their lambs, the lamb of God outside the city between two thieves is crucified at the very time for our sins. Is that amazing? Now you may be asking, but okay, but what about the rest of the text? That's point one. <laughs> you going to tell us about, you know, take this cup and this is the new covenant, my blood and do this remembrance of me. I mean, what are we going to find out about all that stuff? And the answer is, if you come back tonight for the family fellowship service, you'll get part two. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we're thankful that we can look into it. And though some things are difficult to understand and take some research, it is amazing how accurate your truth is. Father, we are thankful for godly men who have come before us to teach us about things which upon casual glance are hard to understand. We are thankful that you orchestrated all events according to your perfect counsel to bring about everything at the perfect time according to your word so that Jesus would die at the very moment when the lambs were being slain in the temple by the thousands, lambs that pointed to you, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who, being crucified between two criminals, died an unjust death, the just for the unjust, so that you could bring us to yourself and that we could have eternal life through faith in Jesus. How incredible that is. May we marvel at it. And may we ponder it and may we praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen.